1989, Henry Ramsey, played by Craig McLaughlin, left the fictional Melbourne suburb of Erinsborough to New Zealand, where he had landed a job as a radio DJ. Now, before he left, he was asked if he'd put any savings away for his retirement. If you're a Neighbours fan from this era, you'll know that Henry was working in a somewhat lucrative industry, so I wasn't surprised that he responded, no, I'm too young to think about retirement. This is a great moment in this show because it brilliantly illustrates a common problem in Australia, a lack of financial literacy. In 1989, Henry, in the show, was 24 years old and he was working as a gardener. So let's think about this for a moment. If Henry was making about $500 a week and he made a minimum contribution to his superannuation, today he would have about $400,000 in his super at the age of 54. And this is assuming that his superannuation was the only long-term financial decision he'd made. Now, many long-time listeners would never have thought that we're going to use an incident like this based on a soap opera 30 years ago to illustrate financial literacy. Thanks for sticking with us so far. So let's talk about financial literacy. I'm David Brown. I'm a professor in accounting in the UTS Business School. And on this episode, we're looking at financial literacy and the cost of good financial advice in Australia. Everybody needs good Joined in the studio by Associate Professor Jonathan Tyler from the UTS Business School. Welcome, John. Thank you, David, and thank you for having me on your program. It is a great pleasure. So can we start with the discussion of financial literacy? So often when we talk about financial literacy, it seems a bit like an oxymoron. We've got two quite distinct terms pooled together, and people usually don't connect these two ideas, financial and literacy. So could you talk us through what this actually is? Financial literacy is understanding money. It's as simple as that. It's about knowing that you are spending a certain amount and where the money's coming from and where it's going to. But it also goes back to the Ramsey example of is it worth saving for superannuation? Should I really be putting my money away? And given that our average listener is probably in their early 20s, we're talking about retirement for them in 50 years' time. We're talking about retirement in 2070. And not surprisingly, it's very hard to think, I need to worry about what's going to happen in 2070. For you and me, we'll be dead. But for them, they'll be going into retirement in their early 70s. Yeah, so what is financial literacy? It's simply understanding about how money works, about risk and return, about compounding interest, um, about the different kind of investments that we can make, um, just a general understanding of how the money system affects me. How would you learn financial literacy? Well, I think there's a number of ways you learn it. Um, you could learn it from your parents. You know, there's a reason why they often say that the first generation makes it, the second generation expands it, and the third generation loses it, because by the time you've got lots of money, that generation probably doesn't worry too much about telling the next generation how to look after it. Okay. So you might learn it from your parents. How else? Well, you can learn it from um, from the financial pages of newspapers, but I wouldn't strongly suggest that you look at the financial review and see what's happening in companies. But, you know, in the Sunday newspaper, you get things like the Barefoot Investor, who provides you good advice on situations and answers questions with it. At other levels, you get responses to responses by 
uh, financial planners who will ask more, answer more complicated questions like, if I have this many assets and I have this kind of an income, will I get the pension and so on with it? So at one level, it's quite complex, but at another level, it's relatively simple. So I can imagine why young people have some challenges learning financial literacy. So let's think through the options. Learn it through your parents. Do you listen to your parents? Nah. Read a book. Nah. Yeah. Oh, read the Fin Review. <laughs> can you imagine, you know, two 19-year-olds go out to a bar on a Friday night. What did you read in the Fin Review today? Well, given that we're talking to a relatively young audience, one of the things that are available these days is a number of apps that can trace where you're spending your money and keep a record of it so that you know at the end of the day. So tell me, John, why do you think it's important to be financially literate? Because I am horrified to see advertisements on TV for what we call payday loans. And these are loans that you can get at relatively short notice when you're short of money. But for instance, do you know that if you take out one of these loans for $1,000, that they, they can charge up to $200 in application fee, and they can charge 4% of the loan or $40 a month for you to service that loan. And so we're talking about taking out a loan for one month that will cost you $1,240 to repay. And on an annualised interest rate, that's 288% interest effectively you're paying on it. And this is, you've got to remember, when almost everyone can get a home loan these days with a three or four in front of it. So we're talking about interest rates which are 50 times larger than people pay on home loans. And yet... These people operate, and I don't think that many of the people who take out the loans understand what an enormous financial cost it is. Is this similar to where you see those, I don't know, on current affair programs where, I don't know, someone's invested in, uh, you know, some kind of financial instrument and then they've lost their life savings? So you often see, for example, older people, uh, you know, people that maybe look like, more like you or me, people with grey hair, and they have lost their you know three hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars of life savings in some kind of I don't know subprime mortgage or yeah. whatever. Is is it like that on a larger scale? No, it's a, it's at the other end of the process because what you're talking about is what I do with my spare money. Um, what I was talking about is what I do when I don't have any money and I need it. So so they're perhaps the different side of the same coin, if you like, with it. The thing that you raise is about the fact that we see this great investment advertised and it is, in fact, a Ponzi scheme or some other con. And it's one of the, I would say, five fundamental financial literacy rules, and that is that if it is, if it looks too good, it probably is. So if people are offering very large returns, those large returns come with very high risk. Now, the fundamental rule is simply because you get a low return doesn't mean that there is no risk. But if there is a high return, there will always be high risk associated with it. Can I give you an example? Yeah, please do. You know, for instance, if we went and played roulette, we could put a dollar on just one of the squares. 
And so there roulette is a, is a gambling game. Yes, right? it is a gambling okay. game. Yes, yes, you you find it in casinos, okay. and it is legal for adults. Um, so anyone who is under eighteen, please ignore this. You put your wager on just one square. You have a one. You have a twenty-seven in a thousand chance of that coming up as a winner. So it's a high risk. But if it comes up as a winner, you get 35 times what you put on. So for your dollar down, you get $35, $36 return. And I don't want people who are experts um, phoning in and telling us that I got my numbers wrong. But this is approximate. While, of course, you can take a low-risk investment of putting it on odds or evens or black or red. I'm not sure. See, it just shows my lack of knowledge. Where you have a 50% chance of winning, but also a 50% chance of doubling your money. And so low risk, low return. So there's a relation between risk and return. And while it may be acceptable for a young person to take some of their investments and put it in a relatively high risk, high growth superannuation, as you talked about at the beginning, it's probably not worth older people doing that because they don't have the chance to recover and get their money back. So two fundamental rules with that, risk and return, and the idea of not investing all of your investments into one area. Don't put all of your eggs into one basket. Can you give me some other examples of financial literacy? You know, so someone who's a financially literate person, uh, what other sorts of general principles or rules would they follow when they think about these yeah. issues? There's a standard rule that we talk about, which is with compound interest, and there's a there's a really interesting um, rule of thumb with it, a heuristic, as we call it, and that's called the rule of 72. And the idea is that if you divide the interest rate by 72, you get the number of years you double the money. So, for instance, if you are getting 10% return, you'll double your money in 7.2 years. If you're getting 2% return, it'll take you 36 years to get your money back. But as Albert Einstein said, that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it makes money with it. He who doesn't loses. Yeah, that's very interesting. So the sorts of things that you've been talking about, you know, the decisions that people might make on a daily basis are really informed then by their level of financial literacy. You know, whether you invest in, I don't know, a financial instrument that's been advertised on the television or whether you take a payday loan, these are all day-to-day decisions that someone who is financially literate presumably is going to come out on the right side of. Hopefully, people will come out on the right side of that. And it's relatively easy for you and you and me, being accountants, to sort of think, well, this is common sense. Of course, people understand it, but it's not necessarily common sense. Okay. You, you know, most of us these days know that we should wash our hands after various things that we engage in not to spread germs um, with it. But of course, 100 years ago, this wasn't common sense and not even common sense for people in the medical area with it. So we, we have to be really careful in going, well, surely everyone understands this because there are people out there who are very, very happy to exploit the non-understanding. So is Australia a very financially literate country, do you think? We're reasonable. When we look at at world averages, we're not too bad. But I think there has been a fundamental move. Let me give you an example, and you were talking about television before. In the early 1970s, there was a television program on the ABC called Bellbird. Now, none of our listeners will understand this. They'll have to ask their grandparents what it is. 
But it was at a time when pollution was starting to become a, an issue. And some of the young people in the town decided that the river was too polluted or the creek was too polluted. And so they needed to get a sample and they needed to get it tested. And who did they get to verify that they took this sample from a particular area in the river? They got their local bank manager. Not their local police officer, not their local accounting professor, not their local local clergyman or whatever. They got their local bank manager. And in that sense, in Australia, we didn't have to worry about financial literacy because we were able to go to the bank and we knew that the bank would do the right thing by us. So just so I've got this clear, a banker was perceived as being someone trustworthy, morally upright, could audit results legitimately. May I go further than that? They were seen as being the most trustworthy, the most upright in the community. Today, the government is releasing the final report of the Royal Commission into misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry. It's a scathing assessment of conduct driven by greed and behaviour that was in breach of existing law and fell well below community expectations. As you move forward, You've got to remember that what happened in Australia with the floating of the Australian dollar was the access to international monetary markets. And what happened was that banks in Australia offered overseas currency-denominated loans. So effectively, you could borrow 100,000 US dollars. And the interest rates were substantially lower. And this looked to make absolute sense. Why would you borrow 100,000 Australian dollars? And let's assume that they were parity at that stage. Why would you borrow 100,000 Australian dollars and pay 10% interest on it when you could borrow 100,000 American dollars and pay 5% interest? It seems like a no-brainer. What about exchange rates? Well, of course, that's what was forgotten. Nobody tended to mention to the person who was financially illiterate because they were relying on somebody that they trusted. Nobody thought to mention about the exchange rate risk. And so what happened was the Australian dollar fell and instead of them owing 100,000 Australian dollars, which was equal originally to 100,000 US dollars, they ended up owing 130,000. So the 5% interest rate started to look very poor when you took into, into account the exchange risk. But of course, you mention exchange risk because you're a boring accountant. You understand about exchange risk, but many people don't. Except, of course, when we travel and we understand that if we put something on our credit card that is denominated in one currency, an overseas currency, that we will be paying a different amount of Australian dollars for it. Mm. I must uh, actually add, there are non-boring accountants. My co-host, Nicole, is definitely a non-boring accountant. So why do you think there's such a gap in financial literacy across the community? So, you know, clearly people have done very well uh, in life. Some of it's luck, but some of it is financial literacy. And then we've got people who clearly have not been able to manage their money very effectively. You know, why is there such a gap? 
Well, it's one of the reasons why I particularly like your podcasts, and that is that you actually address these issues in in, in an interesting way. Because I must confess that anything to do with financial literacy, unless it has an immediate effect on you, isn't very, going to be very interesting. Talking about things that will affect you in many years to come. You know, we'll come back to your Ramsey example. We say in the superannuation industry there are two kinds of people, those that worry about superannuation and their children, or those that don't worry about superannuation and their parents. And it is very much of, the, of that case. It is difficult to worry about things in future years. In the same way, it's very difficult to say to somebody who's 20, you really shouldn't get these tattoos now because... Do you think you'll be wearing the same clothes in 50 years? You'll be wearing the same tattoo. And now I've turned your audience off and I do apologise. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, hey Sue, so, um, could I talk with you a little bit more about investment areas? So we've talked a lot about you know the individual and how they make choices and some of the challenges associated with that. But you know, often, particularly for younger listeners, they may not even be aware of the sorts of choices that you can make if you wanted to invest money. Investing is complicated by tax because, remember, taxes are levied for two fundamental reasons. They're levied, first of all, to raise money for the government to do things, but they're also levied to encourage and discourage certain behaviour. And one of the behaviours that we strongly encourage in Australia is home ownership. And there is no better investment than your own home. Now, not everyone would agree with me with that, but... Most people would tend to say, well, it's one of the better investments. And there is two fundamental reasons with that. The first is that homes go up, and I'll use the Sydney example, homes go up on average in Sydney over the last 70 years, they double every 10 years. So think about that. A house that is worth a million dollars now in Sydney, in 10 years' time will be worth $2 million, in 20 years' time will be worth $4 million, in 30 years' time will be worth... $8 million, in 40 years' time will be worth $16 million, and in 50 years' time will be worth $32 million. So somebody graduating from university now who bought a home and stayed in it would, if history repeats itself, expect to be living in, wait for it, when you retire, a $32 million house. That seems like quite a lot, actually. Yep. And the great thing about it is when they sell it and decide to spend it, on life's luxuries, everything they get for it in the current situation is tax-free. There is no capital gains tax. There is no income tax on your own home. So that's why you're saying taxation is important in terms of investment because it can have a fundamental influence on what kind of return you're going to get over time. Yep. So owning your own home is one really good uh, example what other sorts of things would people invest in? Superannuation is a good example, but superannuation and the fundamental reason why I won't talk that much about superannuation is that the audience is probably looking at superannuation in 30, 40 years' time, or at least the benefits of superannuation 30, 40, 50 years' time. And the big problem is, what will the world look like in 2070? What concessions will be available? There has been great advantages coming with superannuation. When Peter Costello was treasurer, he introduced the idea that drawdowns of superannuation were non-taxable. 
And so there are people out there who are drawing down literally millions of dollars a year and paying absolutely no tax on what everyone else may look upon as being income. For you and I, we will be able to draw down tens of thousands and it will be tax-free with our superannuation um, with it. And on the inside, there are advantages in putting it in. And that is the first 25000 you put in, you can put in tax-free. You can put in out of your pre-tax earnings. So that makes a substantial more a substantially higher contribution. For those on the top marginal tax bracket, we're effectively talking about they would have to earn 50000 to put into the fund if the tax advantage wasn't there, which is equal to the $25,000 in pre-tax that they contribute. Interesting. Okay. What else could one invest in? Well, there is the standard investment is shares. And the great advantage of shares is that on a long-term basis, they have generally increased. But don't expect history to repeat itself. It's hard to believe now, but in the 1980s, Japan was the economy in the world. And Japan was, and their practices were things that we attempted to emulate. Their just-in-time inventory systems were the things that we thought our manufacturing companies should do. Let's first understand, what is Kanban? Kanban is a Japanese term for a visual system, which is used to trigger activity upstream in a given process. This system contains the critical information that controls the production of the right products in the right quantity and at the right time. But in the late 80s, early 90s, the Nikkei index in Japan went to $38,000. It hasn't returned there. So, in fact, if you had $38,000 invested in Japan's share market, wouldn't be dollars, it would be yen, but if you had the money invested in there and you left it there, its value today would be worth less than it was 30 years ago. This is purely on a money basis because the index has not reached back to where it was. The shares are not worth what they were back in 1989. That's really interesting because often uh, I've seen data that suggests that shares over time produce the best return or one of the best returns but presumably again this is timing and which particular index or you know shares you buy what country you buy shares in would that be right well it does does depend as i mentioned the japanese share market has been something you wouldn't have wanted to invest in 30 years ago the american share market would have been something you did want to invest in You know, even if we think over the last 10 years since the global financial crisis, the American share market has performed substantially better than the Australian share market. But hindsight is a wonderful thing. John, you've painted a picture of lots of people not perhaps having the kind of financial literacy required to make good decisions. There's lots of opportunity for investment, some of which are really quite complex by the sound of it, particularly when we start to take into account taxation. Where does the normal person go to get advice over such issues? Generally, people will go, especially when we're talking about superannuation, to financial planners. Because financial planners are the people who are supposed to be able to understand all the government rules about it, about how the system works and so on. Let me let me give you a really interesting one. When we retire, 
you and I can take our entire superannuation, we can sell our home that we live in, we can sell investment properties, we can sell our shares and we can buy an expensive home. And we can then get a full pension. We can live in, and let's assume we're in fantasy land here, that we could have $10 million of assets. We can put $10 million of our assets into a family home and then draw the pension. And, and that's a strange anomaly that nobody generally or very few people generally understand exists. But financial planners would understand that. One of the issues, of course, we've had in the financial planning industry is, is the advice I am giving you the best advice for you or is it the best advice for me? And we've seen this come up time and again in the Banking Royal Commission in other ways as well, in the idea that if there is a financial incentive for me to recommend product A rather than product B, and product B is slightly better than product A, will I be tempted to recommend product A because I am better off by recommending product A to you? Oh, no. Now you've made it more complicated. So I'm just thinking, great. Let me just go outsource this to someone who knows what they're doing and then I can just get on with doing far more interesting things than dealing with my financial literacy. And now you're saying even when you go and see a financial planner, there are challenges. I wonder how do we deal with this? No, it comes back to the bank manager thing. You know, let's be truthful. The bank manager in the 1960s and 70s were obviously working for a bank that pushed their product. I don't think any bank manager would have said to you, hey, David, why don't you invest in my competitor across the street? Because their interest rates are slightly higher than mine. So let's not fool ourselves that there was once a wonderful world in which there was no self-interest and we were only ever interested in what the client did and or the customer point of view. And now we're in a world where everyone's just trying to rip us off. I think it's important to be aware, though, that other people will have incentives. And if you go into it in that way, then perhaps you are going to be better informed in understanding what the process is. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with support from 2SER 107.3. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. You can also search for us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much to John Tyler for coming in on the show to talk about financial literacy and investment. We'll put links in the show notes to some of the tools that we discussed in the episode. Until next time.